The golf league created by Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, which was set to disrupt golf, has itself been disrupted. Plus, we'll take a look at the huge amount of dead money NFL teams are carrying in the form of injured quarterbacks, and later we'll hear from UCLA quarterback Chase Griffin on how he has made NIL into a long-term business. It's Tuesday, November 21st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The Golf League, created by Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, which was set to launch in January, is being postponed by at least a year. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author David Rumsey. Welcome, David. Hey, Owen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. This was a a pretty stunning announcement from TGL. What happened here? Basically, last week, the venue that was supposed to host these virtual hybrid in-person golf matches from TGL had a serious issue. The air-supported dome that was serving as its roof collapsed due to a power failure. Um, If you need a visual, think of when the Vikings dome collapsed about uh, 10, 12 years ago and the snow fell through. This was a little different, but just a crazy scene down in South Florida with this uh, dome collapsed on their venue that was still being built out and test. And they said they were going to assess the damage. And now they've assessed the damage over the weekend. And it turns out they're not going to be able to have it ready in time for their January 9 debut plan date. And they're going to just go ahead and push it back an entire year. Right. And this isn't something where they could just play golf somewhere else. This was a custom built venue for a unique tech enabled league. 100%. This was going to be players like obviously Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and other PGA Tour stars hitting into this huge 64 foot uh, golf simulator. But then they were going to come onto this like lifelike uh, short game area where it was a putting green that they could move around and control and bunkers. And it was going to be really intriguing to see what it looked like uh, on TV in person for the 2000 fans that would get to go see it at at this new venue, which was called SoFi Center because they have this big naming rights deal with SoFi. So this league had so much momentum and a really cool concept. And just like that, I mean, not to um, be punny, but yeah, burst their bubble just as that roof Mm -hmm. fell. Yeah. um, NTGL had a media deal with ESPN. How does that factor into all of this? It was central into getting the league off the ground, and it's really a central factor in why they're delaying an entire year. Um, They're not saying how long it's going to take to repair this damage at at their venue, but it sounds like even if it wasn't going to take more than a month or two, they wanted to have their full allotment of broadcast windows from ESPN, ESPN2, and that's just not going to be available as they get deeper into the year, whether if they had to push it back into March, April, May. Uh, So they're just going to push it back an entire year to probably next January so they can just kind of restart and have those primetime weeknight matches on ESPN, ESPN2, Mondays, Tuesdays. That's really the emphasis for the league is to get this out to a wider audience, not just golf fans are on some niche streaming service. They want the wider mass appeal of ESPN, which has seemed to be a huge supporter of this. I mean, they've carved out some time on their networks, which is valuable time for any sports league. And, you know, they're saying ESPN, that is, is saying, you know, we're really um, supportive of this move and it's going to be okay because this was a multi-year deal. So everything's getting pushed back. But yeah, Media rights, it was kind of pumping this league up, and it's kind of the reason why they can't uh, 
move later into the year, along with the fact that as you get into April, then the Masters starts and the majors start. And I think players see this uh, in January to March as a little bit uh, easier time in the golf calendar. And maybe they don't want to be doing this in the middle of the summer when there's all these major championships. So a lot of factors. ESPN is a huge one. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you're a big golf fan. How does this news strike you? Are you disappointed? Is it or yeah, just how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I'm bummed that we won't get to see it play out. Uh, Yeah, I am a golf fan. I was intrigued, like I've been saying, to see how it was going to work out. Truthfully, I I don't know how it was going to work out. I think it was going to be interesting to see Tiger Woods in primetime. It was going to be cool to see this technology at play. Roy McIlroy is, you know, a lot of people's favorite golfer or one of their favorite golfers, too. So he was jazzed up about this. Uh, I'm always skeptical of these kind of made for TV golf events, whether it's things like the Netflix Cup or the match. And I know this was getting a little bit more serious, but like, when you watch the Masters or the U.S. Open, like it's clear how much these guys care and how hard they're trying and how incredible they are at their profession, which is golf. And I think every other time it just doesn't come across that way. So I was that was my main concern was that they weren't going to care enough and it wasn't going to be a compelling enough product in, in the long term. Um, so we'll have to wait another year to see if that's the case or not. Um I think Tiger Woods and Roy McIlroy will definitely still be there, but who knows what can happen a a year from now. They have a solid list of PGA Tour pros signed up because this league is in partnership with the PGA Tour. But as we've seen over the last year, things in professional golf change really, really fast. So I would not be surprised at all if this league looks a lot different when, and I'm confident that it will launch uh, next January, barring any other unforeseen circumstances, but uh, we'll see what it looks like. I wouldn't be surprised if the roster looks different, if they go with any sort of different type of venue or different competition format. They have a lot more time now to workshop a lot of things because there's a lot of money invested this in this league. A lot of uh, big name owners from the NFL, NBA, MLB. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with over the next year. Yeah, absolutely. David Rumsey, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Owen. There will always be differing opinions on how to build a championship roster in the NFL, but there is no dispute that in today's game, that winning requires a top quarterback. And that's why when you look at the list of highest paid NFL players, it's basically all quarterbacks. Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Daniel Jones, Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers. Those are seven of the nine highest paid players in football this year. But you might have noticed something else about that list. It's not a healthy bunch. Watson, Jones, Burrow, and Rodgers are all out for the year, as is Kirk Cousins of the Minnesota Vikings, who at $30 million is the 15th highest paid player this season. Murray has played in two games this season after returning from a season-ending injury last year. The Wall Street Journal calculated that the contracts of injured quarterbacks currently total over $1 billion. The league does a lot to protect quarterbacks, but there is still an uncomfortable reality that all the value a top QB brings can disappear in a single play. Something is going on with LSU star Angel Reese, but we don't know exactly what. Reese came into the season as one of the most hyped players and marketable college athletes out there. According to On3, she has an NIL value of $1.7 million annually, which is tops among women's college basketball players and seventh among college athletes overall. And three of the people ahead of her on that list, Arch Manning, Shador Sanders, Bronny James, get a boost from having famous dads. Reese's power as a brand was put on display when she became the first big name signed by Shaquille O'Neal in his new role at Reebok. But a week ago, she was benched in the second half of a game against Kent State. 
On Friday, she didn't play against Southeastern Louisiana. Head coach Kim Mulkey, the highest paid women's college basketball coach, has not offered many clues here, and Reese herself simply tweeted out on Sunday, please don't believe everything you read, perhaps referring to rumors that her absence was related to a poor academic performance. LSU has used NIL to take their program to the next level, with Reese and gymnast Livy Dunn leading the charge. But behind the star power is a human being who is clearly going through something, and because of the stature she has built for herself, now she has to go through it in public. Up next, I spoke to UCLA quarterback Chase Griffin. A lot of college athletes see NIL as a quick way to make some money through their playing careers, whether or not they turn pro. Griffin goes beyond that. He takes a more entrepreneurial approach to NIL, including the recent launch of his NIL-focused publication, The Athletes Bureau. We talk about all of that, plus the possibility of college athletes getting paid through revenue sharing, and that conversation is coming up right after this. All right, very excited to be joined now by UCLA Bruins quarterback and two-time winner of the NIL Male Athlete of the Year from both the NIL Summit and Open Doors, Chase Griffin. Welcome, Chase. Thank you for having me, Owen. Yeah, great to have you on. So um, for a lot of college athletes, NIL is a nice bonus to what they're already doing. For you, it seems like it's more of a passion, maybe even a long-term career. What initially drew you to the NIL space? I think I had a unique background in having experience with brands coming out of high school. I was the Gatorade player of the year, Ford player of the year, and won in and out and Whataburger awards in the state of Texas. And because of the nature of Texas high school football, and in particular towns like mine, uh, Hutto, Texas is a one horse town. Everyone comes out for the game. If you're not there, people think you're weird for not showing up. And uh, to have that pressure and that sort of spotlight from 16 as a sophomore, uh, I had you know weekly interviews, radio appearances, guest appearances. And so I had experience doing the things that ended up making me successful in NIL. I just wasn't being paid for them. And when I got to UCLA, I chose it over some other very good institutions. And I felt like in order to pass on those schools, I had to maximize UCLA's network. And by doing that, I wanted to do it on and off the field. Even to this day, you know, football is my main focus. I uh, spent a lot of time on that. And the season before NIO, I had the highest pass rating in the Pac-12. And off the field, I was UCLA's male rep to the student athletic leadership team on the Pac-12 council. I was football's rep to the Bruin Athletic Council. And so I was just doing all of the things that I could to build out a good name. And I think pair that with my experience and being able to speak well on camera, uh, I, I became an attractive choice for young talent for brands to work with. And when you say working with UCLA's network, I'm thinking the off the field stuff, you know, getting those NIL connections, is that something where the university kind of had a, a program for you to kind of tap into people that were already there ready to talk to you? Or is it more you went out and found those people? I think it was a little bit more pro proactive. Uh, UCLA, just like every other school at that time, was brand new to NIL. And I think uh, as an institution, UCLA sort of took the approach of sort of assessing the waters, providing baseline, and just letting folks do what they need to do in the space for themselves. Uh, I think no matter where I was, uh, I would have been doing this just because I want to build out my brand. I, I feel like uh, as a personality, as someone who 
is about business and wants to generate value for others that uh, no matter where I am, I know that I have intrinsic value. It was just about putting it in a way where I could easily communicate to brands how to capture it. And then, and then on the flip side, uh, because I consult with brands, uh, I'm a student executive in residence at Uniworld, uh, which is half owned by WBP. I had access to know exactly how the brands were thinking. Mm-hmm. And from the, the school side, how have you seen UCLA evolve over the years you've been there in terms of how they approach NIL? I think UCLA is growing just like a lot of other schools, uh, similar to revenue share, which is impending on us. I think uh, NIL showed whoever focuses on building out better programs and maximizes money making opportunities for their athletes will be able to recruit uh, better. And I think as UCLA shifts into the Big Ten uh, and, and media deals become more and more uh, and increasingly important, uh, UCLA will continue to grow. Yeah. And you just launched a new NIL-focused publication called The Athletes Bureau. What's the vision here? So The Athletes Bureau is uh, it's a newsletter, but we also have polling and analytics, and it's a community for athletes and those who care about them. And we looked at the space and saw there are a lot of media folks like yourself who are covering NIL, uh, who are covering Revenue Share, who are covering the business of college athletics, and some are doing it with a good heart. Uh, I'd argue that you are, absolutely. But there are a lot who are doing it from a more compensatory uh, point of view. And I think it's important, first and foremost, to have the athlete's perspective in the forefront. And that's what this newsletter is addressing. And I think as I continue along with my team to build out this media property, we'll be able to help facilitate and provide good thought leadership on the revenue share age. When you're seeing you know, younger athletes coming into to school these days, uh, now that we're a little bit into this NIL world, do you find that they're prepared for NIL or is it still just, you know, kind of the, them figuring it out as they go? I think it's a little bit of both. I think for a lot of the athletes who are going to get NIL, they're getting tapped while they're still in high school or early in college by agencies and management groups. Uh, I consult at a management firm called Range Media Partners uh, on the Range Sports team. So I understand from that perspective. I think it's important for athletes in that position to choose people who genuinely care about them who want to maximize their NIL in a way that's authentic. And I think that's important, not just because it protects the athlete, but it also leads to longer term partnerships between athletes and the brands that they work with. And are those consulting groups, I know it's hard to paint all of them with the same brush, but I'm just wondering what you feel about that general landscape. If, you know, college athletes have to be really cautious around those or, you know, maybe once in a while you, you find one that isn't super well run or, you know, it, it maybe has some corruption, uh, but in general, you can, you can trust who you're working with. I think just like every other industry, you know, there's folks who are doing it uh, at a high level. And a lot of those folks uh, 
the reason why they got to that high level is because they have been authentic. They have been doing whatever's best for their client. And at the same time, there are folks and companies out there who have not been doing things in the best interest of athletes. I'd implore every single athlete that no matter who you're working with, whatever track record they have, to be cautious. And uh, I think that's not really just NIL sense. That's good business sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And is there a particular form it tends to take when things aren't working out the way they should? I I think you see some of the cautionary tales, uh, like what happened to Rashada at Florida. Um, and, And you see how frankly athletes can be lied to or, or or if you're not protected enough it can lead to not only a scandal with the athlete and whatever donor but also the school i think uh it's up to the institutions to provide that protection for their athletes as well because it's in the school's best interest to pr- protect their prestige Right now, there's talk of player unionization and revenue sharing. Uh, What do you think about those potential next steps? I think revenue share is inevitable, and I think it's going to be here earlier than people expect. Uh, I'd say in between two and four years now. Um, I'm completely in favor of revenue share. I think that the Austin decision was not just the door uh, that opened up NIO, but it was also the first domino on the way to revenue share. And I think every single major entertainment industry or talent industry pays the talent a certain percentage of the revenue that's made. College athletics is a standalone in that. And that's the reason why there was a 9-0 Supreme Court decision against the NCAA. The business model has to change. It will change. And I think that the conferences and schools that get behind more favorable conditions for their athletes will be able to recruit better athletes and will be able to deliver better on their promises of delivering you know, safety and welfare to their college athletes. And right now there's some momentum toward federal legislation. We'll see whether or not that actually happens, but around NIL and college athlete compensation, do you think the NIL space needs more defined rules and regulations? I think the NIL space, uh, as of now, should just be safeguarded uh, to preserve maximum freedom for athletes. And I think that any bill or any politician or any lobbyist who is speaking about this topic, if there are not multiple athletes attached to whatever they're saying, they can't be held with much weight. Um, At the end of the day, this is an issue that's about athletes. And the decisions that are made that best affect athletes and bring the most equity in the space will provide more progress for everybody involved, all stakeholders. You're a senior now. uh, So what's next for you? I have one more year of eligibility after this year. Uh, Right now, I'm on my third UCLA degree. I'm getting a master's in legal studies at the School of Law. Um, uh, Off the field, I produce music uh, with internet money. And that's been a huge passion of mine. I think eventually I'll start having more projects release. And then I'm also a fellow at the UC investment office. And that's sort of given me the macro scale on what it means to be an investor and how money moves things. Uh, another passion of mine is the entertainment space. I've really enjoyed the production and talent process of NIL. And I've been transitioning over into more traditional long form uh, scripted and unscripted. And just lastly, uh, what's what's the future for the Athletes Bureau? 
So the Athletes Bureau uh, is a media property of mine that I look forward to fostering more and more. Uh, we're always looking for talented journalists out there who love athletes and love the athletic space and want to cover it in a way that promotes equity in the space. And you can find the Athletes Bureau on Substack, on LinkedIn, on my LinkedIn, or just looking up athletesbureau.com. All right, Chase Griffin, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. That is it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today if you have not already done so, or tell a friend or family member about the show. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.